So I want you to turn to James. Men, don't be upset. Don't be upset. I know I gave a special message for the women, but in a sense, James 4, 13 through 17 is perfect for Father's Day because it often falls to the father to make the plans and decisions, and he makes the decisions for the family. And James shows clearly that there's danger in making plans and decisions without God. So you need to consider God, men, as you're making those plans and decisions. And one other thing, you need to consider your wife. So let's do a short review of what we've come to and come through to get to James 13, uh, 4, 13 through 17. So James 4, 7 through 10, you just kind of look down at James chapter 4, 7 through 10 provides us with the disposition of heart of a true believer. You recognize that in James we're, we're having this play off of believers and not believers, those who are not believers that are in the church. And James is calling out those who are professing to be believers, but they're living contrary to the truth of God's word. And so in verses 7 through 10, he kind of lays out 10 commands but they should never be taken as commands of things that a person has to do in order to be saved. There is nothing we can do to be saved. The salvation has already been won in Christ, and what we do is we receive that as something that has been done on our behalf. But those 10 commands, James wanted to shake the professors up to examine their own hearts because they would see if they did that these elements or these aspects of heart were not present in their lives. They were to submit. They were to resist the devil. They were to draw near to God because he promises he will draw near to them. To cleanse their hands because they were sinful. To purify their hearts because they were double-minded. He says, be miserable, mourn, and weep. And let your laughter be turned into mourning. And the capstone, as he's been talking to us since chapter 3, is not to be proud and arrogant, but humble yourself, and then he will exalt you. Because he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And if you look at all nine of those elements there that I just listed, those are the marks of a humbled heart. And I'll tell you, one thing that an unsaved person is not is humble. They're not humble. And then we talked about, uh, in verses 11 and 12, we went into the fact that slander is judgment. A lot of slander going on. I'll tell you, um, gossip and slander the social media that we all engage in now is a prime uh, facilitator of these kind of things. And um, we're coming into election season, so I expect it will pick up. <laughs> Slander. Slander goes after a person's character and their personal dignity. The malicious intent is to destroy a person's good name and reputation. Whereas Proverbs 22 tells us, that a good name, a reputation, if you will, is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. Well, James goes on 
to explain the matter when he brings both the law and the lawgiver into his warning. Slandering is speaking against the law, and therefore it is putting itself over the law and judging the law of God. Now, the law here is referring to the uh, law of liberty, the law of love. But it goes even further, according to James, in these uh, few little verses 11 and 12, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but you're a judge of it. You're over it. Then he goes on in verse 12 to say, there is only one lawgiver and judge. The one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Wow. Strong words by James here. He says, you not only place yourself above the law, but you place yourself above the one who gave the law. You're judging the lawgiver. And then he says, incidentally, the lawgiver is the only one who is able to judge and destroy, to save and destroy. You see, that word destroy there does not mean to annihilate. Some people that don't believe in hell have tried to use this verse to prove that. That's not true. Don't believe that. The word annihilate is from the Greek term apolomui, and it means to bring someone to eternal damnation to bring them to eternal damnation. But the good news is, the same one who is able to destroy is also able to save to everyone and anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus is able to save his people from their sins. He came into the world, it says, to seek and to save that which was lost. That would be everyone. He holds out salvation to everyone. And those who respond, he saves. You see, because it is the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost, that his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to forgive a sinner of all their sins. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to everyone who believes. God is able to save forever those who draw near to him through Jesus Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25. How marvelous. How utterly marvelous. And that brings us to the text for today. I'd like to read it to you from verses 13 through 17 of chapter 4 of James. Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for these riches that you have bestowed upon us through James' writing. So practical, so pertinent to every life today being written a couple thousand years ago. It's because your word is eternal. It's because your word is truth. Father, we are grateful that we have your word. God, help us to live by it, to take it and by your power apply it to our lives so that we might be sanctified by your word because your word is truth, that we might be transformed and changed from the way we have been, maybe the way that we grew up, that your word would break in on our lives and give us new thoughts and new ways to behave and that we might do it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. So this kind of wraps up chapter four for us. And I want to say at the outset, James was writing predominantly to people that were Hebrew background, Jewish people. And he had a a church or an assembly that he's addressing here that were made up of believers and unbelievers. And the unbelievers were professing to be believers, but they really weren't acting like it. And so you've got this play going on throughout James where he's admonishing the unbelievers to examine themselves, test their faith. Are they truly believers? A good word for American Christian churches because there are a lot of churches where there are a lot of people that profess to be believers. They've maybe grown up to be a believer, uh, being told by their parents that they once kneeled by their bed when they were two years old and they believed, and, and yet their lives are not evidencing that of a regenerate person. You see, when the Spirit of God invades our lives and comes to take up his dwelling place within our lives, he begins a process called sanctification. And that sanctification is the transformation of who we were before the Spirit of God came to live within us and who we are now. And we should be ever-changing and transforming more and more into the image of his dear son, Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Not because we become little gods, but because Jesus Christ took on human flesh and lived as a human being on earth. And so he is our model because now we have the power to say no to sin and ungodliness and to live soberly and righteously in this present age. And that's called sanctification. Unbelievers that are professing don't have a progressive transformation in their life. A lot of times they haven't changed a whit. Still have the same sins they had before they were saved. They're not decreasing. They're actually increasing. And they kind of cover that over. They don't have joy. They don't have love. They don't have peace in their lives. All fruit of the Spirit, when the Spirit comes to live within us, He brings love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, goodness, all those fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. And they don't have that in their lives. And James is calling them out. So in this chapter, it's really interesting. And I want to say at the outset here too, believers, okay, true believers can do some of these things that James calls out. And all I want to say as your pastor, stop it. (laughs) Stop it. 
don't do these things that James is calling out in unbelievers. Because we as believers do sin. But that's no reason to go on sinning. And so today we're talking about making plans without including God. Ever done that? Boy, I have. They usually don't turn out well. (laughs) And I, I just say, if you're a believer and you're caught up in this, stop it. Let God transform that attitude, that attitude of independence and and self-will that you can do what you think is best. Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways, commit yourself into the Lord's hands. Um, So that's what James is talking about in these, these couple of verses here. And believers can fall into that. But I think that James is really calling out those who were not believers in the congregation. And the reason is, is because the grammar that James uses in this text, there were those who were in the text saying these things. Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say. And what that could be translated is, you who are saying. And it's in the perfect tense, and so that they are consistently always saying these things. It's the mark of their life. They're always making plans without including God. And so that's why I say this is written to an unbeliever because that is not the mark of an unbeliever. We may slip up and make some plans without considering God, which usually he slaps us on the wrist and corrects us, and we have to repent and say, wow, I blew that, Lord, forgive me. We don't do this always throughout our lives. That would not be the testimony of the Spirit of God living in someone. So James responds in verses 13 through 17, saying, them, those who are doing this, it's a course of life. It was the way they lived without taking God into consideration. And one of the greatest witnesses of an unregenerate person is their attitude toward the will of God. They're not submissive. Usually when we're pressed to make plans without including God, it's because we already know that he's probably not in agreement with what we want to do. And so we forge ahead with our plan without including him because we know he's probably going to say no. That's not right. Now, the true believer not only willingly submits to the will of God, but they actually have a deep desire to follow his will. Just as David says in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will. Oh, my God. Your law is within my heart. The Spirit of God living within us causes us, as believers, to delight in doing God's will. Now, that is totally different from an unregenerate person. An unregenerate person delights in sinning and looks for new ways to sin. And when it comes to God's law, tries to cover over that or disregard it. You see, we see immediately that God's will is linked with his law, which is just another word way of saying his word, because it is only from the Bible that we discover what God's will is. And the glad acceptance or the, the delight that one has in his will is revealed in the Bible, and it's consistent testimony of redeemed people, God's people. 
Listen to this. I have not departed from the command of his lips, his word. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job 23, 12. Never a greater testimony did I hear of this concept than a Taliabo person who was recently saved and coming with us to an outreach area where we were sharing the gospel with uh, Taliabo that had not heard the gospel. And this man sat with us as we taught, and I knew he hadn't eaten. And I said, aren't you hungry? And he said, no, I'm eating plenty right now. And I thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is the real deal. Because the Taliabo, when you're walking with a Taliabo person and you're going past a banana tree with ripe bananas, their eyes are glued on the bananas. If you see um, mangosteen or, or um, what, what's manga? Mangoes, mangoes, okay. They're just always looking at the tree. And this, this is, I think, kind of an Asian thing because I knew a colonel in the Navy that came to our house and had a big mango tree out front and its fruit was on there and I couldn't keep his attention. He just kept looking at the wind blowing that fruit and I thought, wow. I think it comes from being hungry, okay? But this Taliabo man said, no, I'm not hungry. I'm eating fine right here. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. That's Job 23.12. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Psalm 112.1. I will delight in your statutes, his word. I will not forget your word. Psalm 119.16. 119.24 says, your testimonies, your word, are my delight. They are my counselors. In verse 47 of Psalm 119, I will delight in your commandments, which I love. And in verse 92 of the same psalm, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. When do we really turn to the Lord when we're down, 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 down deep? Usually to the Psalms I go. And it's, it's my delight. It soothes me. It reminds me of God. His word is, is precious. His will is precious. Therefore, the unbeliever is seen in James four thirteen through 17 by their response to the will of God. James identifies three wrong responses to the will of God to expose them. He also gives an example of the proper response that they're supposed to have because he's always teaching. In that proper response to his will, we see the heart attitude of every true child of God. James illustrates the various responses to God's will in the context of very practical everyday experience. The plans of his readers, those who would read this epistle, to do business, to go on with the the everyday affairs of life. So this is very pertinent to us. All of us have business to do. Moms that are stay-at-home moms, you have business to do every day. It's in your house. Do you plan out your day? Or does your day just kind of topple over you? I think many plan out their days. Here's the first wrong response 
It's found in verses 13 and 14. Neglecting God's will. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. They neglect God's will. Come now is a phrase that, that it's in every language and it's kind of exclamatory. Hey, listen up. Or pay attention to what I'm about to say. Or in today's vocabulary, yo, right? Listen, I got something to tell you in Taliabo. It's yagamine, aliomai. Listen to the words I'm going to say. Every, every culture has this. Every language has it. And then he goes on, he says, you who say. Now the word used to say here, as I already explained to you, is in the present tense. You who are always saying, and it shows that it's a habitual way of living when they do their planning. They say literally means to say something based on reason or logic. It's something that they took time to think through. They've got plans. They have planned this out, and this is what they say. In verse 13, there are five elements to the choice of plans that they have made. Number one, it's according to their own timing. Today or tomorrow, we will. Oh, listen to the wills in here. Secondly, they choose their own direction. We will go to such and such a place. Thirdly, they choose their own time frame. We will spend a year there. They got it all figured out. Fourthly, they choose their own activities. We will engage in business. And fifthly, they choose their own expected outcome. We will make a profit. Now, before we get into any type of, your minds are just racing, some of you I know, is pastor saying it's, it's a sin to plan? No. No, it's a sin to plan without God. <laughs> it's a sin to plan and not consider God's will in the plans that we make. Do you see the mention of God in any of those five areas that I just mentioned? No. He's left out, and that's what James is saying. Don't do this. It's not sinful or wrong to be wise and, and strategic in your planning. How could you ever get anything done in a house or a business without it? But the ones in James' example did extensive planning, but they left God out completely. He was outside their plans, and that's what he's getting at. The foolishness of such behavior is explained by James in the next verse. This is why it's foolish. Two reasons. Very, very clear. Number one, the uncertainty of life. We do not know what's going to happen. After church, on the way home, tonight, we don't know. Life happens, right? just comes upon us. And we don't have a forewarning of what's going to happen. I mean, I look out on, a, on our congregation and, you know, stuff happened last fall. My dear wife had to have open heart surgery. Who knew? She's just fine. We go to the doctor and bang, right? And I'm looking at some of you and I know you've had life come into your plans. And the thing is, sometimes it wrecks our plans. A little curveball thrown to us, right? 
So the uncertainty of life, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You remember the story that Jesus told in the Gospels about that rich man who was so impressed by his success that he was going to tear down his old barns and, and build up his new ones to store all of his increase. And he, he didn't include God in his plans. But God inserted himself into the man's life. And Jesus related, this is what he said, you fool. This very night, Your soul is required of you. He's going to die. And he's got plans of how he's going to tear down the old barns, put up the new barns, fill them all up with all of his increase. And God says, you fool. The uncertainty of life. The rich man did not have a clue as to what would come even the next day. But he went on planning as though tomorrow would never come, completely leaving God out of his plans. And God called him a fool. Now, the the second reason is the brevity of life. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James used Old Old Testament imagery here to address the brevity of life. The word used for vapor refers to like a puff of breath that can be seen on a cold morning. Those of us up here, up in Minnesota, we know what that's like. But it just goes away then. Or those of us that like good, strong black coffee in the morning and we take our cup and we pour the coffee in and there's a little vapor that comes up and we see that, like a little cloud. But then it disappears, right? That's what he's talking about. We see it for a moment and then it dissipates, it's gone. The actual word used for appears and vanishes literally means to be visible and then to be invisible. The Bible repeatedly provides warnings of the brevity of life when compared with eternity. Now listen to me, saints, because this is important. For we are only of yesterday and know nothing. And know nothing because our days on earth are as a shadow. Job 8, 9. Chapter 9 again of Job says, Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They slip by like reed boats, like an eagle that swoops on its prey. Quickness, rapidity, just boom, it's gone. Again in Job 14, Man is born of woman and he is short-lived. And full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. Job 14.1 For all of our days have declined in your fury, Lord. We have finished our years like a sigh. I've seen many pass, and they give a sigh as they pass. Many. It's the last thing. The expiration of breath. We're but breath. We're like a vapor, people. As for the days of our life, they, they contain 70 years. Oh, my Lord. Next year. So I better get things in place, right? Or if due to strength, 80 years. Or if you're really strong, 
like Grandma Edna, a hundred. Right? For soon it is gone. That's what we need to recognize. Soon it is gone and we fly away. Psalm 90, verses 9 and 10. As for man, his days are like grass. Now, I have grass in my yard. I've told you about cutting my yard. I like it. But now it's coming into a time where I understand what he means when he says, man's days are like grass, as a flower of the field. So he flourishes. It was looking really good. Now with this heat and no rain, and I don't have a a sprinkling system, so it's beginning to fade. All that beautiful lush grass, that lush green is kind of yellow now. I pull my little sprinkler around, but I I got an acre of lawn and I just can't pull it around that much. It's just too much. So it begins to fade and I see what he means. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more and its place acknowledges it no longer, Psalm 103. All flesh is grass. He keeps using that from the Old Testament. And all its loveliness is like a flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of God stands forever. Now listen to me, okay? There are two things in the world that are eternal. The word of God and the souls of people. Now it should be our intention to be engaged to our utmost with the souls of men and the word of God. Because what we do with the souls of men and the word of God, it's eternal. It's eternal. Why would we not be engaged like that? Only the true believer is comforted in understanding life from an eternal perspective. For those that are not saved, this scares them. It's frightening talk. I probably triggered some today. Maybe some who are listening are not in church. The believer will seek to keep God in their plans as they recognize not only the uncertainties of life, but the brevity of life. Only believers can fully grasp Jesus' warning in Matthew chapter 6. He says, don't lay up treasures for yourself upon the earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves uh, and where thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If your treasure, if what you value is the souls of people and the word of God, you're in good standing. Because that is eternal. That's locked. It's, it's your treasure for the future. And if we only live 70 years, and maybe if things are going really well, 80 years compared to eternity? Are you kidding me? I mean, sometimes I think, I read God's word and I think, we are so dull. He says things so clear. And it's like, poof, right past us. So here's what he's saying in Linetti speak, okay? You're foolish to give your life to amassing things that you're just going to leave behind when you die because you can't take it with you. So why not give your life to the souls of people and the word of God and store up your treasures there where it's safe, where you're going to enjoy it forever and ever? Aren't we just thick? Because, man... Sometimes, and, and God 
talks about us like ants, and he talks about us like the waves of the sea, and, and just scurry around, and we're giving our whole life and energy to something that's not eternal. Now, does that say, don't work, don't plan, don't amass things, don't provide things for your family? Don't take it like that. That's foolishness. You understand what I'm saying. So, this could be summed up by Psalm 90, verse 12. So, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's godly planning. And that closes the first wrong response to the will of God. Don't neglect it, people. Secondly, don't refuse God's will. Verse 16, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. The contrast obvious by the word but. He's contrasting here. And it's indicative of the small place that the will of God played in these people's lives. The boasting that they continue to make reflects back to verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says, Come now you who say today or tomorrow. The basis of their bragging came from their anticipation of what the future would bring, and sadly, it was a future planned without taking God's will into consideration. It says you boast. To boast means to speak loudly. Uh, Such boasting is addressed in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 talk all about wisdom, godly wisdom and earthly wisdom. And and 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 28 and 29 says, God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. No man should boast before God. Just a clear Command. No man should boast before God. And then he sums it up in verse 31. This is Paul writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's okay to boast in the Lord. God's attitude about boasting in an individual's plan without considering him is seen in, in verse 19 of that same chapter in Corinthians. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Wow. Secondly, he says all boasting, all that kind of boasting and arrogance when you're not taking into consideration the will of God, it's evil. It's evil. Rather than thinking that it's some small matter, James says it's evil. The bragging James refers to is evil. The word used seven times as a title for Satan The evil one, the evil one, the evil one. Same word. And it brings us back to the five I wills of Isaiah 14 that I shared with you last week. The Greek word behind the NSB's word arrogance is defined as, quote, an uh, insolent and empty assurance. (laughs) A zero with the rim knocked off. Which trusts in its own power and resources and shamefully despises and violates divine law. That's what this arrogance is. The devil, as well as a willful individual, refuses God's will, and instead they trust in their own understanding. So far we've seen two wrong responses, right? Refusing it or neglecting it, excuse me, neglecting it and refusing it. The third one 
is literally opposing God's will. We see that in verse 17. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. This is the sin of omission. You know what is right and you don't do it. Quite simply, but tragically, those who respond to this, they actually know what is right and they decide not to do it. Why? Because it's cutting across their plans. They want to do something. They're affections are hooked onto something. They want to do it, and they know that God probably won't agree with it, or they know that he does not agree with it, but they want it so bad, they go for it. Jesus addressed this in Luke 12. He's talking about slaves here, and he says, that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will, He's going to receive a lot of lashes. That's a high-handed sin. It's intentional. You know what's right and you don't do it. But, contrastive, here's the other side. But the one who did not know it, sins of ignorance, and committed deeds worthy of a flogging, doesn't give him a wash. He sinned, did something wrong, but they'll receive but few lashes and then he sums it up from everyone who has been given much much will be required when you know what to do and that it's right and you don't do it be careful there's consequences for that so those are the three wrong responses to the will of god neglecting it refusing it and opposing it now what's the the right response well i left out a verse and it's in verse 15 instead There's a contrastive. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and also do this or that. I love James. He says, we'll go here or there. We'll do this or that. He is so practical. He's just talking to normal people. The first word, obviously, a contrast. And he gives us a clear contrast and that the same words are used which mark this attitude should be a habitual one. He goes back to someone says, right? Look at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, again, you ought to be saying, and it's in the present tense. This ought to be the habit of your life. You ought to be saying, if the Lord wills. It's not just some little thing that you tack on, like, have a nice day. It's an attitude of heart that you have. If the Lord wills, God is not left out of this. The genuine believer knows that the will of God is always good, acceptable, and perfect, even when it cuts across their plans. That's the hard one, people. Their lives are governed by an underlying attitude of checking in with God and submitting to him. Maybe submitting to him before they even know what he wants them to do in this situation, but their heart attitude is one of hands off. I never forget making a decision to come back to the United States after spending almost 20 years in Indonesia. It took over a year. <laughs> and I started praying, and I was like, there's no way I can do this. I had an offer to go to Grace Community Church. And uh, that was a, quite an offer. And they said, hey, we'll give you your, your, uh, your studies uh, at the seminary free of charge. That was heavy. 
But I thought, I can't do this. I'm a missionary. Well, I had been for almost 20 years, and I was just like, no way, no way. Well, I read Psalm 25, which I always go to when I'm having to make heavy decisions. And I prayed and prayed and prayed. And pretty soon after a few months, I got to neutral. That's where I took my hands off and I said, well, if you, if you want this, I, I can't hardly understand it, but if you want me to leave Indonesia. Now, understand that my work in Taliabu was done. There were elders established. The church was flourishing. And I really was kind of like a third thumb now, you know. The missionary goes and brings the word of God and evangelizes and plants the church and then moves on. And, and so, and then finally, after a year, I talked to the leadership in the field and to a one, I asked them, what would you do? And they were silent. Of course, prior to that, they were saying, you've got to stay, you've got to stay. Until I said, what would you do with this opportunity? And every one of them was silent. And I went, okay, Lord, okay. And I went. That was hard. But sometimes it takes a process. And at first, I wasn't that willing. I thought, I can't do this. But then God just worked through. And I didn't make the decision until the very end. You see, when you're saying, if the Lord wills, you're allowing for God's will. You're allowing him to guide and direct you, if the Lord wills, Lord willing. Each plan is evaluated by God's standards and goals. Each plan is laid before God in prayer and with adequate time spent in considering desires. And when the readers of James' letter were in such a place they'd be able to say with David, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord, and I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. And you know who I hear when I read that verse is Bulihaya Kempung, the cripple lady, with her marred hands from, from leprosy, just stubs of hands in the Taliabo story. She's at the end of the story, and she says, And if God wants me to stay on earth, I say, well, you're my God. You're my God. I trust you. If you want me to stay here, I'll stay. If you want to take me home, I'll come. She understood it. How come it's so hard for some of us? Well, back to James 4.15, where he says, we will live and also do this or that. James pointed out for the true believer Both their lives and activities depended on God's will for them. And the fact that James used the words, we will, shows that there was planning taking place, but it was considering God in all of it. Now, for closing, I just want you to turn to Psalm 37 with me. So I think it's a beautiful psalm to close off our time together. Psalm 37, I'd like to read uh, beginning in verse 1 through verse 11. And, and, and this, if, if you're given to worries about things that, you know, are coming and you, you don't know what you should do and the plans that you should make and so forth, this is a great psalm for you. Uh, because three times um, the psalmist says, David says, do not fret or don't worry, don't be anxious, okay? Verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers 
And be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Okay, so there's that, that analogy again of the grass. And this time, it's those who are evildoers, the wicked. I can say this. A lot of the rich in this world are evildoers and wicked. They got their gain uh, in wicked ways and in an evil way, and they're flourishing. Don't get worried about that. Don't put your heart in them and go, I don't have two nickels to rub together. What's up with that? And I love God, and I go to church every Sunday. Well, don't, you know, there's a church on the other side of town you can go to, a health, wealth, and prosperity church, and if you think that's going to help you, but um, come talk to me first, and I'll talk you out of it. Verse 2, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Instead, and it doesn't say that, but it is contrastive, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. In, in, in my translation of that Hebrew text, I would say, sit down, be quiet, and be faithful. You know, a lot of us are just always chomping at the bit for the next thing. I think... God would be well pleased if we just sat down, shut up, and did what's in front of us instead of always wanting the next thing, right? Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. If you are content and you are in a place of complete submission to the Father, you will have the desires of your heart met. Why? Because they're his desires. You're there. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he'll do it. Again, if you're in that position of complete submission to the Father and the Lordship of Christ, he will do it, and you will be pleased with it because you're where you should be. Verse 6, he'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment plans as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Don't fret, second time, because of him who prospers in his way, because the man who carries out wicked schemes cease from anger and forsake wrath. Third time, do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. If you, if you fret and you're anxious about stuff, you're not trusting. Guys, we came through a terrible time with COVID, and there are still multitudes of people walking around with these masks on. I stand amazed. But you know what that says a lot of times is that they are scared to death of dying. So if you see a person with a mask on, zero in and witness to them. (laughs) Share the good news of the gospel with them because chances are they're really, really fearful of death. But keep your space. Don't touch them. Right? Okay. Don't fret. It leads only to evil doing. Verse 9 for evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord. Looking at this and looking to his will, those who wait on the Lord, they will inherit the land. They're not looking to their own ways. They're looking and waiting for the Lord. Verse 10, Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble... And we're right back at James, aren't we? The humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves 
and abundant prosperity. It's not talking about wealth, health, and prosperity now. You may, God's blessing may be upon you and you may have things. You may have good health and everything. Praise God. But you will definitely, if you delight yourselves in the Lord, you will definitely have prosperity in the world to come. Because that's where you're storing your treasure. In the word of God and the souls of men. So, fathers, take heed. These words are for you today as you plan your family's lives, schooling for your children, houses that you're going to buy, whatever it might be. Take God into consideration. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have such a big book with your will so clearly stated there for us on so many of its pages. Help us not to run ahead of you and make plans outside of you and your will. Help us to get in that place of neutrality where we can just take whatever your hand provides for us. Sure, we can make our plans, but you are the one that order our steps. And help us to allow you to do that, Lord. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.